You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. This is episode 323. My name is Chris Spangle. We're recording live on October 20th. October 20th? I don't know. I think it's October, it's October 20th. We're good. It's it's the weekend. I have no idea what's going on. Yes. Uh, and so we're going to talk about tariffs today. We're going to talk about the student movement within the libertarian movement. My guest is Z Hunt. We're hunting for Z's today. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. If I we, haven't heard that one before. We'll see if we can good. find it here in just a moment. Oops. Warning. This show is for adults. Produced by semi-adults. So the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. Welcome to this episode of We Are Libertarians. Again, my name is Chris Spangle. You're, um, you're joining us live to tape. If you're a Patreon member, you, you got to hear the explanation of why we, we don't edit around here. So this is a <laughs> non-edited show. So there's no live wire for our uh, guest, who is, this is her first time on We Are Libertarians, Z Hunt. Z, how are you? I'm doing so good. Thanks for having me. I, I'm, I, it's a pleasure to have you here. You have, um, I've known your mom for a long time. She's uh, great. She's a very nice woman. Uh, I met her, I met her for the first time. I've been Facebook friends with her for probably a decade. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, I just knew her as this woman who had a, a litter of kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> so you have how many brothers and sisters? So there are 11 of us all together. Okay. Mm-hmm. Including you. Yeah. Including, so I guess I have 10 brothers and sisters. Yeah. Okay. So are we going to go for one more so we can get a full dozen? You or? know, so, <laughs> so the problem with that is that if you get twins and you've got an ugly number of like 13. A baker's so, dozen though. Right. A baker. How ugly is that? 13. <laughs> sh- oh my. No, I'm just kidding. I love, love the kids, but, um, <laughs> no. So we're, um, yeah, eleven altogether. I think that's I think that's it actually. Is that so, like the first thing that people talk to you about? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much yeah, it's it's really just that's all I've got. So <laughs> I can, I'm gonna go ahead and get, get right. off the show now. Right, it's <laughs> nice to have you here. All right, thanks for joining us. So I guess I'm doing this one by myself. No. Uh, <laughs> so are you already annoyed because I've already brought up the brothers and sisters? No, I love I love big families. Like honestly, I could talk about those for like forever. So I actually met, a good time. I actually met your sister first. Um, her name's Reagan. Is mm-hmm. that after the president? Yep, after Ronald Reagan. And um, uh, where was this going? And uh, yeah, she's like, yeah, I want to have a dozen. I want to beat my mom. I was like, whoa. <laughs> she, said, she was like, she was like, that's my starter pack. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So your your mom, I've known for a long time, and uh, then I saw her children start going to Mises events, and I started plotting. I'm like, all right, once these kids are in college, we're gonna start putting these on the th- them on the air here because they're they're uh, 45 minutes south of here, and so we've got young libertarians that uh, she you really were indoctrinated, were you not? It 
really, yeah, it was kind of an indoctrination, you know, Um, (laughs) because when you grow up in a family, like such a large family, and then um, your parents are both pretty libertarian, and uh, I've been going to events, so my mom would bring um, us four oldest girls. No, I... Well, I guess those three oldest girls at the time, she would bring us to um, different like talking events ever since we were maybe 12. Well, that's where I met. I probably met you. And let's see if if you were there. So I met several girls who were kind of older uh, and some babies in strollers. I met your mom for the first time at um, Glenn Greenwald Mm -hmm. was speaking and who else? Uh, Bruce Fine. Huh. So this is probably 2011. I oh, would say. I was probably there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was at IUPUI. Uh huh. So so we did meet in person then. We've met before. Yeah. Then. Yeah. This is great. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And then uh, I met you again at Students for Liberty. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, you go to like a ton of you travel more than I do, which I don't know how is possible, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you you're out all the time. I know. So mm-hmm. where where what libertarian events do you have you gone to as a college student or as a young libertarian? So it kind of started, I think, with International Students for Liberty, um, which was their, so yeah, it was the, just their convention in D.C. Right. Because when I got to campus, um, I went to St. Olaf College in Minnesota, and when I got to campus and I saw they had a Young Americans for Liberty group, I was like so excited. I was like, oh my God, you guys are here. We're so excited. <laughs> and um, and then so I started going to meetings right away. And then in the fall, we all decided there was a, um, a pretty large group of five of us, um, libertarians on campus. And so we decided... <laughs> As, I mean, like pretty fiercely liberal campus. So we right. were we were holding together. Um, but we ended up going to the um, D.C. conference. And that's kind of where all these different events started for me because um, it was so inspiring, like all sorts of really cool speakers, um, very values based, which is what we get in libertarianism, which is awesome. Um, and yeah, so I heard a bunch of cool speakers and then I got to know the Mises Institute through um, that event too. And so um, there was a guy there representing the Mises Institute. He was awesome, so cool. And he um, he was like, oh, you should totally come to our uh, Mises University um, summer camp that we have. And so I applied and got in and that's where that's where it started with Mises events. You're so. telling me there's a libertarian summer camp? There is. So it's actually, um, it's not, literally labeled the libertarian summer camp but it's called um the mises university and um it studies um it's where everyone's studying austrian econ and so nerd yeah it was so fun though oh my gosh so that's my school of thought austrian economics is my is my thing now listeners know that i struggle with economics i got a c in high school in economics and uh (laughs) yes i know it's the foundation of everything that we believe uh, so I try my best. I read. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in the process of reading Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. That's a great one. Uh, it is. It's very good. You I were love on, Thomas Sowell. You were just. You were on the beach reading what? Rothbard. Okay, so Rothbard is my beach read. <laughs> um, I. <laughs> I have like a couple of Rothbard books that I've been wanting to get through. And um, if y'all haven't read Murray Rothbard, he is um, by far one of my favorite Austrian economists for sure. Why? Because he's he's very accessible. Like the way he writes stuff is just very um, laid out. Um, I feel like people are going to fight me on this, but I feel like he's better than Mises in a lot of ways um, because he's more accessible to the layman, you know, like just you anyone. just lost half the audience. I know. <laughs> 
first appearance and you're already <laughs> stirring up controversy. You're like, cool, I will never have you back. <laughs> I, I could care less. I Listen, I uh, I read Rothbard because I do a subject topic based show and then I'm like, all right, what does Rothbard say about this? Uh-huh. So it's always like going back to, the, he's like, he's, he's I don't want to say the Bible because he's not sacred, that's for sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he is very authoritative and um, so when you go to Libertarian Summer Camp, uh, what is, like, how much how steeped in austrian economics are you like are we one of the founders of this show is creighton harrington and he was in young americans for liberty and he mm-hmm. just he could quote rothbard right off the top of his head like I, and he didn't even go to summer camp you just must like dream about hayek and and i just that's all i think about yeah. most of the time yeah so it's not it's very very steep in austrian econ this particular conference event is because it's seven days of just econ classes pretty much and so all day long you're hearing from some of the brightest minds in Austrian econ um, and it's free like you go totally on scholarship they pay for your food everything you get to have lunch with people like Judge Napolitano Tom Woods Robert Murphy um, like and just casually talk to them like I was at Chipotle with Tom Woods I just just (laughs) chatting with him like oh what are you getting for lunch oh what is Tom Woods order you know I you know and I forget Get. I was too busy thinking about how I was talking to Tom Woods at the Chipotle. <laughs> so, I was like, oh my God, hello. It, how surreal is it? It must be so surreal for Tom Woods to like have college students going, I'm having lunch with Tom Woods. Like, what in what world are economist rock stars? It's amazing. <laughs> so, so, funniest thing is that I was so still obsessed with um, Robert Murphy and um, he is just like I love the way he talks about things and um, how he explains things and I remember seeing him when I was in high school and um, I just had the best time watching him speak and then I saw him at Mises University and I was like oh my god it's Robert Mur- oh guys it's Bob Murphy and they were like what who's and I was like it's Bob Murphy guys you don't understand but he's great I'm so excited and then he literally gets up and goes because I was scared to go take photos with you know, to go ask for photos with an economist, like who does that? Right. And um, and then he was like, somehow you know, I, I imagine they said yes. <laughs> they were like, no, I don't have time for you. No, they <laughs> no, they were like, oh yeah, of course. But he gets up on stage and was like, you know, I just want you guys to know, you know, we like taking photos with the students. It's not often we get to. <laughs> right. We have like our fan clubs here going. So yeah, they're they're <laughs> everybody hates them everywhere else. It, that's the great <laughs> thing. It's the great thing about going to libertarian events, be it a convention, a local meetup, a, a summer camp, which still blows my mind. I literally had no idea that this happened until I have been in the libertarian Austrian movement a decade. Austrian econ summer camp, yeah. Uh, now, what was the guy to girl ratio, by the way? Okay, so it was. Did they have armed guards outside your door? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, like special padlocks on the girls' doors. Like, yeah, no. So it was. Um, could you know, there were probably like eight to eleven girls there. Um, so when I first, it's it's really gone up in numbers. I think we were like twenty something girls this year. Um, I've been going for three years, but okay. The first year I went, there were like eleven girls, and um, and then like hundred and twenty guys, <laughs> and so. <laughs> Yeah, good times. It was just really great. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't seem all that sincere. I'm going to be honest. See. No, I mean, <laughs> someone said. Oh no! This is mean. No, um. No, it's okay. We do. Was like, we're, so, <laughs> we're a fan of mean here. Go so ahead. I have my like thinking voice and my you know like talking voice are different sometimes. But um, no, someone was like, yeah, man, the the odds are good here, but the goods are odd, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a f- 
<laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I have never heard a better explanation of uh, <laughs> a woman at a libertarian event than that in my life. The odds are good, but the goods are odd. <laughs> it is true. It is the the creeper. How many friend requests did you get that weekend? Oh, you know what? Um, I don't even know. I got lots of all the friend requests. It was a good time, though. <laughs> yeah. <You know, just, laughs> Just making friends, guys. Making friends. So. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Yeah, that's cool. That's uh, so. You you read Rothbard for fun. I, I mean, you're going to get a lot of friend. Re- I mean, people are sitting here going, "Wow, a uh, young libertarian who reads Rothbard for fun." I mean, they're furiously searching. That's why we're not using your real name. Uh, that's right. That's right. That's Z Hunt, everyone. Not- <laughs> right, not the real one. Not the real one. Um. So, but. It is interesting how so so going back back in my day, uh, Z, uh, back, way back in two thousand and eight, it, it, it I think for guys like Tom Woods or Ron Paul or um, you know the people that I that I've been around uh, like Mark Rutherford or Andy Horning or some of the local guys too, it is really rewarding to see the growth. So I went to I, I mean I went to the Students for Liberty conference in 2013. It's now mm-hmm. called Liberty Con. Yeah, I hate that new name. Mm. R- really? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Well, it sounds <laughs> it sounds like you're going to like an anime conference or something. You know, like right. it's bad enough being libertarian, but you know, no, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> it, I'm totally I, kidding. I kind of agree with you. I think the the visuals, the graphics of it are great. They've done a yeah, great no, job. Yeah, no, it's really cool. Yeah. But we by nature don't like things that are are hip or cool. Mm. Even the youngest of us, we're like, I wanted a little bit stuffy. I want my, I want some, you know, I want some David Friedman looking dudes walking around. That's right. That's what I'm saying. Guys in suits. Right. Call it ISFCL or whatever. (laughs) So I went in 2013 and it was, it was not a ton of women. It was Mm -mm. mostly guys. It was a lot of, you know, odd goods. And (laughs) they, uh, you know, but I noticed a big shift away from political parties. So... You know, a decade before that, when I was in college Republicans, it was all about joining a political party. And I joined the college Republicans. I became president of my local chapter. See, we do things in college that we regret. Uh, one of mine was voting for Bush and oh, wow. okay. having a pro-war rally and, you know, a lot of, a lot of neocon stuff as a, as, a, as a child. And, you know, so it, but then by 2013, because I went to CPAC in 2003, mm-hmm. and it was, it was very party motivated. Yeah. And then in 2013, it was very candidate-motivated. It was the era of Rand and Ron and Thomas Massey and Justin Amash. And then when I went this last year in 2018 to Liberty Con, it was 50-50 women. It was, mm-hmm. it, in some respects, it it was less about the philosophy and more about the personalities. Right, yeah. And I don't know if you have noticed this, but there is something going on in the youth movement of the libertarian movement where it is a little bit more about, it, it, it's become a little more poppy. It's become mm-hmm. a little more reality TV-ized, as opposed right, to, right. it's less about the philosophy. Those 2008 to 2012 y'all kids were really all about the Austrian economics. Mm-hmm. And the kids this year, a decade later, seen more about getting the photo with Thomas Massey. Right, right. That, am I being am I being overly critical? No, I don't. I don't think that's overly critical at all. And actually, it's kind of funny because um, 
uh, a friend of mine in um, college. I was president of Young Americans for Liberty my senior year. And um, she made this comment like, oh, um, I guess being libertarian is like the hip thing to do now. And I was like, actually slightly offended. I was like, oh my God. I was like, no, I was in this before it was cool. Thank you very much. Like, <laughs> like not into that. But, um, and it does seem to be less about the, um, less about the theory and the philosophy and like, um, that sort of thing and definitely more about getting the pictures and you know having a good time and freedom for all and you know lots of talk on the drug movement lots of talk on you know like you've got all your um, like power words or whatever they're called I, I mm-hmm. forget, but yeah so I agree okay I agree. It's, it, it, it's a bummer but it well, is it's super sad it, so. because what you end up with a Republican convention mm-hmm. I mean, it, everything that starts out this is why I don't like protests the first women's march was or the first tea parties they were all great right yeah but then it becomes you know the tea party express is is planning the rallies the move on people are planning the rallies it mm-hmm. becomes and i think we're kind of moving that direction in some of the in the libertarian movement a mm-hmm. little bit you start to see the organizations taking over more than the grassroots and that that kind of can become an issue although i trust fee and some of these mm-hmm. other groups way more than i trust you know some of the others but right it's true conservatives but well and this is what i love about um the mises institute and especially when i was there like i totally felt like they were so steeped in um theory and how and like just a general philosophy of how they do things that it wasn't you know it wasn't about being hip or cool i mean you sit and listen to hours and hours of lectures on austrian economics you know like you're only there if you want to be there right and so it's not like, oh, I'm going to go get my photo with, you know, Vermin Supreme and then call it quits, you know, which was actually very cool, guys, by the way. <laughs> Got a photo of Vermin Supreme. He was pretty cool. But um, not at Mises Institute, but yeah. So it's it's um, a lot less about, you know, the, the hip aspect of it and, and I, much more about the philosophy. I still highly recommend it. I mean, what are some of your favorite memories from going to some of these events? Oh, I loved hearing the speakers. Um I, um, there were some different sessions that particularly stood out to me, um, that were really interesting. Um, especially they focused a lot. So for any college students who listen to the show, like they're, they're a lot, like it's lots of focus on how, um, the students, um, can, can go about their campuses, about like, um, kind of trigger issues on campus. Um, uh, so, so lots of sessions about that. That was cool. Um, one of my favorite, one of my favorite things that happened was there was a band who came from uh, Russia, I think. And um, I don't know if they thought it was a Bernie rally or something, but they all wore Bernie shirts <laughs> and they just loved Bernie. And um, But they were like literally like entertainment for the event. And you could tell, <laughs> tell everyone in the audience was super uncomfortable because they were like, oh, do these guys know they're like in the wrong place? Like, are they supposed to be here? That's like, so funny. Was, yeah, it, it was, was it Pussy Riot? Yeah. Oh, yeah. really? Uh-huh. That's amazing. Isn't that funny? So they were yeah. all wearing wearing Bernie shirts. Okay. So it was a good time. I mean, they were great. It was fun, but... <laughs> yeah, so I think people think that it's really expensive to go to this stuff, so you've mm-hmm. really just gotten scholarships and been able to yeah. pay... Other people have paid for you to go. Yeah, so... So LibertyCon, um, they give you, they give like $100 travel scholarships. So it actually comes out to be super reasonable if you can book your hotels with other people. Right. And so, I mean, we were having, you know, don't tell the hotel, but we had like maybe six of us in a room <laughs> at one time. So, so I mean, it works out just fine. Or you can Airbnb it. I'm into that now. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah. So if you can get, if you can drive or carpool. Um, but the sucky thing is that if you're in school, you don't really have time to drive 10 hours. Yeah. Um, so we usually flew, but um, but that's fine too. You can fly, get cheap tickets. Um, 
Yeah. I uh, I went to this year's. Rupert is actually speaking. Our buddy Rupert Bonham was speaking next. Uh, the next the 2019 Liberty Con. I'm I'm debating going. I've got a place to crash, so I may go. It's perfect. Um, the, but I had trouble getting there. I did a couple <laughs> episodes there, but I walk in. I I turn the corner to the convention. And the first thing I see is a hunt sister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I I met you later, but I saw um, Lauren probably. Lauren. Yeah. It was not Reagan. It was somebody nope. else. Yeah. Yeah. It was Lauren. So uh, she goes to the same school. They're everywhere. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I going. You went. You're now graduated from college. Right. But. Mm-hmm. What shift did you see from your freshman year to now in terms of, because in the beginning, in 2016, 2017, it was kind of like, all right, well, maybe fire is just kind of overdoing it with the political correctness and the Antifa and and the screaming and the safe spaces and all that. And now it just seems to be so pervasive and in our face. I mean, what kind of shift being on a liberal college campus did you see? Over the over, over those years, what years did you go to school? Um, so I was in school what from twenty fourteen, I guess, until now. Um, and so it was odd because um, when he started, it seemed like it was a little bit less of a um, huge deal for people to. Uh, I don't know. There there just weren't as many like die-ins as what we called them or or special riots for for different school things. Um, but the odd thing was for St. Olaf is that a lot of the administration tended to be a little bit on the conservative side, but the campus itself was just like very fiercely liberal. Um, um, and actually, you know what, as a whole, if you were to pull the students, it probably wouldn't have been that, you know, left like super, super left-minded, um, except the people who were on the very, very left tended to have more tended to be more outspoken. Right. Um, and so that's kind of where, where you got that. So in terms of a shift in four years, like um, I definitely saw a lot more people come out of the woodwork um, for better like political philosophy about stuff. And so a lot of people said, you know what, look, I think we're taking this too far, you know, calm down, that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of people went the exact opposite way too. So it's kind of neat watching people come out and and say things where they were actually started to say their opinions about stuff. People started showing up for more meetings. Um, it turned into pretty much like a weekly rant session for a lot of people. You so know? because they were <laughs> because they were so active, it activated a bunch of other people to start right, knowing what say, they believe. Uh huh. To say, hey, look, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, I knew I kind of didn't agree with you, but now I now I'm really feeling it. You know, that sort of thing. I'm feeling that way too. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know if you. Uh you know, I come from a conservative background, mm-hmm. and I, I'm a I'm a conservative person by nature, and and it is true. Like libertarians always fight for lives that are far more interesting than their own. Right, right. <laughs> We're not that exciting in terms of how our, our personal conduct. So it's not like a lot of people are out there going, "I want to," you know, "I want to do all these things," and that's why I'm here. It's like, no, you're here just because you love freedom, right? But uh, so I don't know if you come from more of a conservative or, or liberal background, but it is I have I have felt myself over the last year, especially kind of get pulled. I feel the pull of trying to get into a certain camp like I, I have been called a left libertarian for mm-hmm. so long because my main issues are war. I'm anti-war. I'm uh, pro prison reform, pro, yeah. you know, but uh, you 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 see sort of the polarization like it even starts to hit libertarians you start to kind of drift back into the bias that you were born into mm-hmm. or that you originally had i mean have you noticed that yourself um yes i think um you do begin to start drifting that way i mean i grew up in a pretty conservative background let me ask um, you this yeah so let me ask it this way 
the kids that you went to school with, you're mm-hmm. probably Facebook friends with all of those people. Right, yeah. Those people that you're on the front lines of Students for Liberty with, you all love libertarianism, you're all like at the camps and, you know, meeting Murray Rothbard's uh, godson or whatever they do. And uh, have you noticed those people start to start to go from anarcho-capitalist Rothbardians towards one side or the other? No, I think they've actually shifted a little bit more towards... Um towards having just a firmer, like even just more libertarianism in itself, like not so much the politics of it, but more of the philosophy behind it too. And so, but I think they tend to be more on the left side, like if they were to shift to one side. So, and it's odd watching people as they graduate college because in college they might've been, you know, super liberal on everything. And you see a lot of people starting to shift, like a lot of those Facebook friends, like as soon as they pay their first um, <laughs> taxes, yep, they... They, they start to get yeah, woke, yeah. Everyone gets a mind sh- um, shifts. Uh, a mindset shift is what I was trying to say. Say it so. three times fast now. Oh my god, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> I refuse. Well, cool. Don't yeah. tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's right. like I'm married again. Oh my god, wow, okay. <laughs> uh, I had flashbacks. <laughs> It's like my own PTSD. personal uh, Yeah, and the benefit for you is you're going to be able to see the college shifts over the next uh, 40 years. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. Mm. What's, your young, what's your youngest sibling? Um, So the youngest is four right now. Okay. All right. Yeah, so he's going to be in school when I'm, what, like 47? Yeah. So he's... 47 is what you said, wait, right? Yes. Yeah, 47 is what I said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that says it. That's not... Is that a joke? I don't do math. Is that... So if you're 20... Right, so so I'd be... I'm 23. Right. And so... And then he's four, right? And then yeah. in 20 years... Well, I guess he'll be right out of college. You will be. You'll years. be in your middle 40s. When I, you I will. How crazy is that? I'll be like, back in my day, when I, <laughs> <laughs> when I was in college. <laughs> You'll be ranting on a libertarian podcast. <laughs> so, so you know, listeners kind of know... I it's it's not that I don't know economics. I know economics and I know the arguments. It's just I just it doesn't motivate me. And I do this show, you know, I've said it a million times. It's the Buckley it's the Buckley theory of political commentary. Mm-hmm. You commentate on what makes you mad yeah. and what, what makes you passionate. And so when I look at it, I just kind of go, yeah, central planners being central planners. But this thing over here that everybody's talking about. But I do want to uh, pay more attention to economics. And so I, you know, when I found out that she was going to Mises camps and all this, I was like, you know, let's talk about an economic issue. Let's talk about tariffs, Mm -hmm. which is not something that we have really covered, but it has been a big issue over the course uh, of the of the uh, the last, gosh, really three years. I mean, yeah, it kind of is. It's crazy to me that we are talking about tariffs. (laughs) What is it? 1932. Um, that you were, so you were telling me, you know, like, I was like, what are you interested in? You're like, I really get into the history of tariffs. I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah, you're totally outing me on my nerdiness with this. So. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, can we talk about history? <laughs> Don't blame me. Okay. <laughs> right, everyone put on your sleeping mask. It's time to. <laughs> no. So, so let's talk about the history of tariffs. Let's, let's go all the way. I mean, how far back do you want to go? Um, let's just go back to just kind of right when they started, um, okay. right when they were implemented initially. Um, yeah. What, what should I, what should I say about them? Like, 
Uh, let's 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 go all the way back to let's go back to Adam Smith. Let's go that far back. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> yeah. that's pretty far back. Well, I mean, in the in the early days, tariffs were really how most countries funded mm-hmm. a lot of their they they taxed goods based on tariffs because it was very easy at the beginning to say, okay, well, this shipment of stuff is coming in here. Let's put some a tax on this tea. Right, right. Or let's put a tax on this paper. You know, because when you unload it off of the docks, we can mark it down on the manifest. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the good that is coming in. Mm-hmm. And so, you were telling me a crazy stat about the, the tariffs then in America versus now. I mean, what was that oh, stat? Yeah, so it's nuts because when, when tariffs first started, so back in, um, well, in the U.S., so our first tariff was implemented in 1789, I think. And um, so, that was right after we were done fighting a war right. off of taxes partly and so you got the federal government going well crap we can't you know tax our we can't you know just pleasantly request taxes from the states you know (laughs) (laughs) so what's easy the easy thing to do is to take um you know taxes off of the shipments that are coming in like you were saying right and so that ended up being i want to say roughly about 95 percent of federal income um was tariffs for a while Hmm. I mean, it went up and down. If you look at the numbers, I mean, it, it fluctuated quite a bit. Um, but yeah, at certain points, it was like 95% of our income um, was was from tariffs. Um, but the interesting is, though, is that now it's only, what, like 1.2%, 1.4% of our federal income. We're arguing over a very small amount of, uh, but it, it still does have a great I mean, impact. It's considerable, right, right, right. And the reason why it has such a big impact is partly because it affects other um, economic things within this country. Um, but then in addition to that, it's our foreign relations. So we've got, you know, like the World Trade Organization on our backs. We've got, you know, like all sorts of trade agreements with other countries, you know, trade wars, stuff like that. Um, so it does make a difference, even though it's only a tiny percentage of what of what we're doing. So sure, yeah. And Adam Smith basically said that this is the the tool of central planners, and he he mm-hmm. he, he basically explained it in terms of chess. Mm-hmm. So a central planner will sit down and will look at the chessboard and put a tariff here on this thing and put a tariff here on this thing. So, for instance, the Chinese put a tariff on soybeans to hurt Trump in specific districts where he had the most support. So they're trying to affect our elections by putting tariffs on certain districts. Mm-hmm. And uh, so and and that has an effect. And so the central planner looks at it and says, I will put a 10% tariff on this and this will be the outcome. This will be the thing. But the problem is that it's flesh and blood human beings. It's not necessarily, <laughs> it, it's not chess pieces. Uh-huh. And so when you put a tariff on something like soybeans, what you end up with is subsidies. Mm-hmm. You end up with, uh, it's the gateway to welfare. So you put this tax on soybeans, and then all of a sudden, Donald Trump is putting $12 billion in welfare into the pockets of soybean farmers. Mm-hmm. And so that always, be, and then you get the retaliation, and then it just goes on from there, and it continues to build and build. And so that's the problem with using a tariff. Just to define a tariff, uh, thanks to Zach Ripple for helping us with some research for this episode, part of our research team. Um, What are tariffs? A tariff is a tax imposed by one country against an imported good from another country. Tariffs are usually levied against a specific good. There are two types of tariffs. Specific tariffs, a tariff employed against one type of good at a fixed Mm -hmm. fee, unique to that good, for example. India places a specific tariff of $3 per pair of shoes imported from the U.S. So uh, they put $3 per shoe. So the people in um, India are basically paying $3 extra for their shoes. Mm -hmm. 
Or there is the ad valorem tariff. These tariffs are percentage based on the value of the good. For example, this is a funny example, Zach. Um, I had to. I was like Biafra. Uh, for example, I was like, "Is that a country?" And then again, my meme history going down the. I started. I thought it was maybe um, a probiotic. <laughs> <laughs> so, Biafra places a 10% tariff on vehicles from Kekistan, which I don't think is a real country either. I think he's, he's, he's messing is, with me. He's just screwing with you. I yes. had to, yeah. So, I think he's making up the example. Biafra places a 10% tariff on vehicles from Kekistan. That means 10% of the vehicle's good uh, vehicle's value. So, a $10,000 car would have a tariff of $1,000 to import. So, that 10% starts sliding. So, you have the specific tariff of the set dollar amount or you have the percentage tariff. Uh, and so, the there are non-tariff import controls such as import quotas, licenses, voluntary export restraints, or VERs. Mm-hmm. So, there's several reasons that a country will use tariffs. And it usually starts with national security. And to me, this is having... Uh, see, back in my day... Uh, <laughs> back see, in my day. <laughs> back in my day, uh, which was, you know, 2000 uh, to the current era, I remember when politicians didn't use national security for literally every single thing. Mm-hmm. And then we went through the Bush era and the 9-11 era, and then national security became the excuse, and now it's overdone. It's It's... You know, it's like uh, crying at the Oscars, we roll our eyes. National security. Uh, so a country will limit in an imported supply of good critical to national security, such as uh, uranium, in favor of domestically produced goods. Um, and basically, we want to decrease a country's reliance on imports for national defense. Mm-hmm. So you want to spur on a country. You know, So Trump says, I'm going to tariff the steel industry so we can grow the amount of steel being produced here because it's in our national interest to have steel produced here. So if China gets out of sorts or Russia gets out of sorts, then we're not reliant on another nation's import. Um, protection of an infant industry. This is something you've seen solar panels tariffed like crazy over the years. Steel and solar panels are always like the first to be tariffed starting in 2002. Uh, there is the protection of domestic employment and or consumers. So, America. Y- yeah, exactly. We're, pr- <laughs> we're protecting those steel workers and their jobs. Um, but the problem with that is inevitably you end up losing jobs in other sectors mm-hmm. because you're protecting those jobs. Um, and then there's retaliation where uh, a country like Saudi Arabia does something. So we put a tariff on their oil until they act in compliance with our wishes. So. All of this is known as protectionism. And if you go back into the history of our country, you start to see that tariffs were, uh, it was very uh, laissez-faire. Mm-hmm. That was the point of the Constitution. If you go back into the Articles of Confederation, part of the reason that that didn't work was protectionism. You had different currencies, and so you had currency battles between the states, Mm -hmm. and then you had uh, tariffs in various industries amongst the states. And that was one of the reasons that the Constitution was necessary to set up a situation where Florida could trade with North Carolina, could trade with South Carolina, and you had the free flow of goods. And that's part of the reason that America became America. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, so these trade imbalances are talked about a lot. I just went to Florida. You just went to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just right? got back like two days ago. So how much would you say you spent in Mexico? Oh, like 
like on food and stuff. And just in general, let's throw out a number. What was the? D- so let's say like three hundred and fifty bucks or something. Okay, so you have a trade deficit with Mexico of three hundred and fifty dollars. Hate them. Right. No, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're the worst. <laughs> you, so you have this trade deficit with this foreign country. I mm-hmm. have a trade deficit with Florida. I just went and spent five hundred dollars in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so. But the reality is I got goods and services in those countries. Did you get fed for your $350? I did. It was delicious tacos. Right. Mm. Did you get housing while you were there? I did. Right. Yeah. So on paper, you have this trade imbalance with Mexico because the intangibles can't be seen on a balance sheet. Mm -hmm. So that is the the ridiculousness of that argument. I want to... um, and sorry for being so chatty Z, but uh, oh no, I'm, talk away! You're I'm good. on a roll. I'm on a roll now. I'm, I'm <laughs> on a roll now, guys. Hey. Right. <laughs> so Cato has a magazine called Regulation, and uh, it's a great magazine. Ooh, I sh- want that. <laughs> I'll show you all the different journals that I subscribe to. Oh you my will, gosh, yeah, I'm in. You will go home and you will spend five hundred dollars on. That's journals. right. I will have a trade deficit with my <laughs> with Cato. Yes. Cato. <laughs> uh, yeah, Cato has several publications. Um, you know, Regulation. They have their Cato Journal. The yeah, there's Independent Institute, Hoover Institution, lots of great journals out there. Uh, I even take the uh, Foreign Affairs from the Council on Foreign Relations because uh, I like to taunt you people uh, so you'll think that I am a globalist. So, <laughs> so they have an article about Peter Navarro, and they talk about the trade deficit argument and the absolute, eh, let's say, dishonesty about Peter Navarro's trade deficit argument. And Peter Navarro is one of the few economists that actually works in the upper echelons of the Trump administration. He is a protectionist, and he is kind of the the architect of all of this protectionism that Trump pushes. Um, in and so they write in this article, which is the the actual front of the. Uh, the front page, Peter Navarro's conversion, because Navarro started out as a free trade economist and then turned into a protectionist. No, it's so sad. I know. And so they they write, in the coming China wars, Navarro subliminally suggests that China is to blame for the federal budget deficit because the Chinese buy treasury bonds. <laughs> Over the past five decades, the United States government has proven that it is quite able to run growing budget deficits by itself, which in turn invites trade deficits. As of May 2018, Chinese holdings of treasury bonds, no doubt mostly by the Chinese government, correspond to 7.7% of the federal debt. Contrary to what Navarro argues, the automatic adjustment mechanisms exist for trade imbalances. A trade deficit can grow larger than the net inward capital flows. Uh, Let me say that again because I didn't read it right. A trade deficit can't grow larger than the net inward capital flows. If it does, exchange rates will adjust. In the case of the United States, the dollar will lose value relative to other currencies, which in turn will reduce imports and increase exports. Mm. But foreign investors do want to invest in the attractive American economy. Navarro falls for the journalistic canard that net exports, exports minus imports, reduce GDP by simple arithmetic. When the expression net exports is used, it is usually written in quotation marks as Navarro and Entry do in Death by China because it represents a mere statistical trick used by national statisticians to remove imports that were already included in the uses of GDP in consumer, government, and investment expenditures. Imports have to be removed because they are not part of the GDP, which is gross 
domestic product. Think about the guy on the scale who who subtracts one pound to factor in the weight of his shoes. His weight doesn't change if instead he subtracts two pounds because the, the day he was wearing heavier shoes. Likewise, American output doesn't change because more imports are both added and subtracted. But Navarro and Autry overlook this when, in Death by China, they quickly drop the warning quotation marks around net exports and substitute trade deficit. Hocus pocus. <laughs> they can now claim that the trade deficit reduces gr- domestic production as a matter of accounting arithmetic. With all due respect to Navarro, George Mason, the university economist Don Boudreau, was right when he posted on Facebook, if Trump advisor Peter Navarro knows any e- economics, he's very skilled at giving no evidence to this knowledge. <laughs> uh, and so, so that's what the trade deficit is. is it, when these guys talk about the trade deficit, it, their 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 arithmetic is wrong, mm-hmm. so that's why you can't really fall for some of this uh, this nonsense from Peter like Peter Navarro and this article in Regulation. I'll see if I can find it online, but uh, you may have to buy the magazine yourself for six ninety five from the Cato Institute, um, and I'll see if I can link that in the show notes for you. But um, it, it just outlines all of the different arguments that Peter Navarro makes and just destroys them with real economics. Mm-hmm. That uh, you learned at summer camp. Yeah, <laughs> my summer campy con back in band camp. So, so what are some of the arguments that you've heard over the years about the trade deficit and why it doesn't make sense? So, I think um, <laughs> there are a lot of <laughs> a lot of good ones for why it doesn't make sense. I think some of the main ones are um, one I really liked is that people always talk about infant industries and they say, "Wow, well, like we gotta have we gotta have the tariffs because we've got to protect." you know, like American industry. And we've got to allow the U.S. to, you know, develop its own its own systems. And how can we do that if it's cheaper to import it from China? That sort of thing. And it seems ridiculous because we don't set a time limit on that. Right. So it's not like we go, oh, you know, in exactly two years, we'll cut the tariff off. And, you know, then it's all everyone, everyone for themselves. You know, it's like, like, no, you're going to have higher prices for maybe the next 80 years, maybe the next 90 years. No one knows. And if you said it that way, people probably wouldn't be all in for that. Right. You know, but they they don't. They go, oh, it's a temporary, you know, it's like a temporary tax, you know, no problem, you know. So um, and then it ends up lasting for for a long time. Right. And so so they just never put a time frame on it. So, yeah, I think none is better, but <laughs> time frame would be nice, too. Right. It, it, the, another example could be the grocery store. This is mm-hmm. one that's often said. So I am a purveyor of spoken word here. And uh, so let's say the grocery store, we look at these specific grocery store and uh, I go in and I buy $50 worth of groceries and they have bought nothing from We Are Libertarians. Right. It doesn't mean that uh, even though there is a trade deficit with that specific entity, it doesn't mean that I have lost anything. Mm-hmm. On paper, yes, I've lost, and they may they may have made profit off of me, but that profit then will be used to help support the system elsewhere. So right. the trade deficit is just really something that is not a very convincing argument when you start to break it down and look at it uh, from... Uh, an economic perspective. That's why very few economists are actually protectionist economists. Mm-hmm. They're they're sort of uh, there's a lot more Keynesians, and we know how how. I mean, <laughs> when I say Keynes, I mean you must just get real irate about it. I do. I get a little bit <laughs> you're like, a little salty. You're, like, you're turning green. You're about to. I am. I'm like, all right, cool. Let me at him. <laughs> Hulk smash. That's right. <laughs> 
Or trigger words. <laughs> so, uh, and you listen, you jump in anytime because um, I talk a lot. So. Right. I mean, it does seem like the argument for, um, in terms of reducing the trade deficit, you know, when you hear it at first, you know, around the dinner table, you're like, oh, that makes sense, you know, reduce the trade deficit. But then in reality, it's just so bogus when you think about the amount of surpluses and deficits we have with just a bunch of varying countries. And so, so yeah, we might have trade deficits, large trade deficits with some countries, but then we also have surpluses with others. And so um, money keeps circling around, circling around. So it's all good here, folks. So let's talk about jobs being lost. (laughs) Jobs. (laughs) wait you were allowed to watch south park i love south park actually you know it's not that i was allowed to in high school it's just that i did Um, (laughs) i sent this link to your mother you might be grounded when you get home (laughs) oh no no i'm moving out i'm moving to malaysia so we're good (laughs) what is that a joke no i'm actually moving um january 1st so to malaysia uh-huh, to malaysia so the 10 cre- months the creepertarians got to you that much huh <laughs> that's right i was like oh my god i gotta get away <laughs> i can't get away from these creepertarians i've got to go to malaysia <laughs> that's right well, that's very good uh so i'm feigning that i didn't know this you're going to teach english to malaysians is that yep. what it was? all right to small malaysian children all right so yeah. i hope they're small i hope they're not high schoolers so <laughs> <laughs> why well because high schoolers I can't demand the same kind of respect as I can with small children. <laughs> you're much. You're not. A, yeah. They're. You're much larger than a toddler. Right. High schoolers are like, oh, we're just friends, you know. <laughs> so when it when it comes to lost jobs, the, the, the steel tariffs uh, that Bush put in 2002 in place actually cost the steel industry 200,000 jobs. Yeah. Uh, and and every single time that jobs are implemented, they're lost. So in, in this specific, let me see if I can find, you know, let me tell you what Trump is up to. Um, so I, just looking at the Wikipedia page for Trump tariffs, uh, you just have to Wikipedia it. Yeah. So, the best kind. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How um, many pages are there on Trump's tariffs? This yeah. is a 16-page document. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's That's a lot. That's pretty... Hmm. But I, I also have a bigger font because I'm, I'm elderly. Uh-huh. Uh, right, right. Bought the glasses. <laughs> so when you, when you start to... Um, when you look at something like the Whirlpool with the Carrier Corporation, Carrier was based here in India, and these jobs were lost. And so then Bush, uh, Trump does the tax cuts, and Carrier's like, "Yay, we're gonna stay!" And then he does the <laughs> then he does the tariffs on washing machines, uh, and then ends up uh, Carrier <laughs> when he did the washing machine um, tariffs. Carrier was like, "Yes, this is great. We can we can maintain jobs." But then he did steel tariffs in a second round, and then they had to move their jobs to Mexico. Mm-hmm. When you look at the Kentucky bourbon tariffs, ninety five percent of bourbon is made in Kentucky. Well, Thomas Massey was talking about how in his district he has a bourbon maker that is owned by a, a, a European Union based company, and so when we when they placed bourbon tariffs to hurt Trump in Kentucky, the EU placed tariffs on the bourbon industry. The EU was taxing its own company, basically. <laughs> it was making it more expensive for not only them, but also us. Mm-hmm. And so what you what you see when you place tariffs is that it never stops with just that one tariff. It never stops with just the washing machines. It, it then goes to the other country 
doing a tariff and then you do a tariff back and then there's another tariff Mm -hmm. and then it just is an escalating continuing war in the process it's cronyism yeah thousands tens of uh, almost 10,000 exemptions have been placed uh, have been filed by uh, companies to get exemptions from tariffs Mm -hmm. and so you know you get countries that get exempted from tariffs. Australia got an exemption on the steel because they make a special type of steel. And so what you have with tariffs is that you end up with a tremendous amount of cronyism where you have countries and companies alike getting special favors from the government. And who loses? Mm -hmm. The people that are not connected, that are not donating to Congress and consumers themselves. Mm -hmm. And so the higher prices for goods... Uh, and the the hit the higher prices to do business uh, if you're if you're involved in making washing machines and then someone places a steel tariff it's more expensive to then make that washing machine right and so what happens when you tax a business what happens when you tax a business where does the money come from z the consumer that's right w- wait a minute the business ta- pays the taxes right right but then the consumer has to pay the extra cost for whatever the service is or maybe the products or um, what have you. It comes from yeah. th- it comes from three places. It comes from you paying higher prices, mm-hmm. which often they don't want to do because <laughs> then they don't want to they don't want to price themselves out of competition. They take it out of their stock prices, which they don't want to do because they want more investment, or they take it out of the labor market. And so they hire less people, they don't replace new workers, they don't give higher wage increases. And so the problem with Donald Trump's economic plan is that Donald Trump did he spurred all this growth, all this investment from companies uh, when he did the tax cuts and then did the tariffs and basically negated what he had done in a lot of these industries. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's losing American jobs, which he doesn't seem to be uh, all that mad about because in the end, there's, there's too many jobs. Too, too <laughs> many jobs, Z. Too much, yeah. too much work yeah. out there. No, it's crazy because it's like for for the steel companies, say, I mean, because that's been been a hot topic lately. You got our steel companies, and it's like they're getting a sweet handout from the government um, because oh, awesome, cool. Now everyone has to buy steel from us in the United States, America, right. and then everyone else who uses steel in their products, uh, they they suffer for it. Right. And so at a glance, too, you're looking at it, and again, you go, oh, cool, yeah, it looks like we have more jobs in the steel industry. And that's true, except when you look further than that and actually think about the repercussions of certain policies um, on just the average consumer. you know, And a lot of people go, well, yeah, I'm willing to pay an extra 10 cents on my, you know, this or that. Um because, you know, I'm, I'm happy that steel is made in America in case we get times of war, blah, 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 all that stuff. But 10, you know, like a few cents on every product that some of these companies make, like that's huge. Yeah. You know, that's not just like, that's not pocket change when you're talking about thousands and thousands of products, you know. So it's ridiculous. Especially ridiculous. in a global market. You, right. When you have a global market like we do... It is really hard to start picking and choosing winners and losers. Uh huh. And so, from a libertarian free market perspective, you have to look at these Republicans that are making these arguments and go, 
Why are you engaged in crony capitalism? This protectionism is just basically the government picking winners and losers. Mm-hmm. It's giving welfare to farmers to the tune of $12 billion. <laughs> it is, you, you have the power of the purse at, at Congress, mm-hmm. and yet the administration, the executive branch, is choosing to activate a program. That, that farmer bailout to the tune of $12 billion to the soybean farmers is being funneled through an an existing program that was started during the FDR um, Great Depression era. And so instead of the Congress voting to send the, according to the Constitution, $12 billion to farmers, it's Donald Trump just deciding to do this. <laughs> and so from a constitutional limited government perspective, it's wrong. Uh, and it, it, there just aren't a lot of uh, really good arguments for free trade for or for protectionism from a free trade mm-hmm. pers- from our uh, show notes again from Zach pro free trade arguments there's when you don't have tariffs you have less bureaucratic interference bureaucracy automatically starts messing everything up <laughs> uh, do you deal with government bureaucracy how does it I, go for you you know not usually really well i yeah <laughs> not well <laughs> Uh, no hindrance of commodity imports, so it's easier to import commodities. Mm-hmm. I, I imagine that you uh, are familiar with iPencil. Yes. Can you explain what iPencil is? So iPencil is like a little little booklet kind of story thing that talks about like the creation of a pencil, and um, it's something that you would go like, oh, this is such a such a small thing and kind of a um, non important object. But when you look at you know the amount of work that goes into creating a pencil and the amount of economies that are involved in that. Um, it's kind of crazy. So it's like a 10 page read. It's, it's super, super tiny. Leonard Reed from Uh the just Google fee F E E and I pencil. And they talk about the rubber tree plants in South Mm -hmm. America or to the Congo and you zinc, you have wood, you have all these different things that just make up this tiny little pencil. And that's how the global economy works now is that, Mm -hmm. People in people in China are better at producing the actual physical good of the iPhone. But is it going? Yeah. So, um, listen, that we were so fire. Yeah, that was going. It was going well. <laughs> that we blew up the electricity for the entire apartment. So uh, we're we're currently sitting here in the dark. All right, you're about to hear some angry knocks on your door. Like, <laughs> please crap stop here. Dropping so much knowledge so hard. <laughs> um, so I don't even. What were we even talking about? Um, uh, something about jobs, probably something about. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You know what? Something I wanted to talk about. Yes. Um, the national security issue okay. with the tariffs, because I feel like this is a huge, um, <laughs> that this is something that a lot of, especially like all right people get at when right. they talk about, uh, what they like about tariffs and they say, Oh, you know, tariffs are great because what we're finding is, is that, you know, it helps protect our country in times of war. We'll have our steel production available, um, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but it seems to me that, um, you know, again, so many of these arguments sound like a good argument at the face right. of everything. But when you dig a little bit deeper into it, it doesn't quite make sense, right. especially from a free market perspective when you're looking at it. So for the national security aspect, you know, you've got um, so say right now we're relying mostly on Chinese steel or we're relying mostly on imported steel. Um, 
you know, like a lot of people, like you can kind of predict when when times of war are going to happen. Right. You know, they don't just like you don't just wake up in the morning and go, oh my, what? Like, what, what happened? <laughs> you know, you know? What? I want to I destroy that country. <laughs> right. I'm going to, yeah, right. Uh, let me be honest, though. Right. Donald Trump might. <laughs> so right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not, let's not count our chickens <laughs> I, before they're roosted. I read something talking about Donald Trump and they were like, yeah, with this foreign policy, you know, it's kind of like leaving teenagers in the house alone for the weekend. Yeah. You know, it's not like you expect it to be the house to be any cleaner when you come back or any better. You just hope it hasn't burned down you right know? <laughs> exactly right so but um but yeah so you know a lot of times you can kind of predict about when times of war would be and from a free market perspective and maybe this is something that people can dig at when they're you know when you're chatting with your friends about you know why tariffs are a bad idea is that even with this whole idea of um we're going to protect our country because we want to make sure that you know um things are available to produce here um it does seem that if if it were beneficial for, say, steel companies to have, you know, because prices of steel are going to skyrocket in times of war. So it seems like they would have the ability to transfer production to U.S. if they saw that there was going to be a good investment for that. And so I do think it would end up evening out for people um, where where there is some sort of backup on U.S. soil because there's money in it. In the global economy, I mean, different economies are better. And I remember what we were talking about. It's it's like what America is good at is designing the iPhone mm-hmm. and the code. And so America benefits by having those higher paying tech jobs. And right. there, there is pain as you move from the type of economy that, uh, you know, our parents grew up in to the type of economy you know, where our grandparents grew up in less of a knowledge economy and more of a production economy. And so we are living in a knowledge economy. It's mm-hmm. it's beneficial for you and I, or for, wait, it's beneficial for you and me to, <laughs> <laughs> I had to think about it. Um, I always get that one wrong. But uh, so it's beneficial for us because we have higher wages. We have better paying jobs. Right. You know, and so... The uh, the reality is that China China's economy has a 1950s America economy, mm-hmm. and so they're better at certain things than we are. And so there there really isn't an, an enormous loss if you go and look at people who lost their jobs. It's not like those people are maybe there maybe these people in Michigan are being dumped onto the rolls of welfare. But by and large, I'm sure a lot of those people have transitioned into something different. The people who made the horse and the horse drawn buggies eventually went to work in the auto industry. They took their knowledge and they applied it to four wheels instead of two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you look at the real competition for the American worker. I was watching some YouTube videos about this specific thing, and it was a John Stossel video. And he was showing Trump in Michigan talking about auto workers. It wasn't. It wasn't these cars being made in China. Mm-hmm. It was the cars being made by robots. Mm-hmm. So artificial intelligence and robotics are really the bigger competition for a lot of these low-paying jobs. Mm-hmm. And so it's incumbent upon people to increase their skill set in a global economy. And we're at the top of the heap because we have the ability to work at those higher-paying jobs mm-hmm. than maybe somebody who was born in the socioeconomic rung in China, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to me, this is like the beauty, like just kind of the glory of human ingenuity in itself, because um, we have watched our economies grow and grow and grow or collapse in different ways. And um, um, we watch like people and their minds just like taking over that, you know, like you, you see a need in an economy and you fix that. Right. And so even if 
say you didn't have a job in one industry anymore, that doesn't mean that you can't get a job in another industry. Right. You know, like steel workers didn't grow up being, you know, like you didn't grow up like being a steel worker. You know what I mean? It's like you, you find a profession and then like, because we have brains and like, we know what we're doing. We can, we can switch around. We can move. Yeah. I will have four different careers in my lifetime Yeah, and they'll all kind of be interconnected, but I've, I've had two different careers already, mm-hmm. three different careers. Uh, you know, and so it, it just, it, it's an ever building amount of um, skill sets, but it doesn't mean, it, it, I think we just think about the economy, Donald Trump especially, I think Donald Trump watches a lot of movies from the 1940s and 50s and 60s and thinks that's how the world should work, that's how we, we need to return to that world, and it just doesn't work like that. And right, there, right. there are just a certain amount of people that just can't get over the fact that their life is unfair and they're victims. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, it's like, quit living in the fact that this auto industry changed. Right. Uh, it, it, it is, it's different. And if those headphones aren't working, you don't have to wear them anymore. Oh, okay, they're not working. <laughs> they're not working. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but um, <laughs> the, do you like avocados? I love avocados. Well, actually, you know what? I like a little bit of avocado. A little bit. Define no. a little bit of avocado. Not like piles and piles of avocado, but like four bites. You know, like okay, that. four <laughs> bites. All right. Growing up, I never saw an avocado. I never have. Did you know that there was a world where we did not have avocados? What? It's, it's true. It's absolutely the truth. When I was a kid, avocados didn't exist. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, they existed, but I just didn't see one until 1997. Right, no, the trees didn't exist, guys. <laughs> they were not. They had not made the trees yet. <laughs> the only reason that we have avocados in such great numbers is because of NAFTA, because of the free trade agreement in 1993, I think it was, with Bill Clinton in Mexico, where we were able to import avocados. Think of all the guacamole makers that we've been able to employ. Think about how people's lives have been changed. <laughs> oh, my God. Guacamole. Are, are, are you basic? Um, pretty much, you know. I try, I try, I really try not to be. Um, but <laughs> it, 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 listen, it's okay. Just admit it. You're basic. You know. <laughs> thank you. You like thank you, you I like avocado the toast. You got like avocado toast. It's okay. Right, right. I just just a little bit on some low fat bread. That's how I like it. You know, just <laughs> I just like ooties. <laughs> just a little bit of avocado. Ezekiel bread or bust. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Ezekiel bread is not bread. I don't know what that is, but I will never put that in my mouth. If you have, I love Ezekiel bread. Uh. <laughs> I didn't know that was basic, though. I thought that was health nut, but I didn't know it, it was basic. It's definitely wow. health nut. Okay, yeah. good. Um, I think I had it once, and it was like, just a, it's like a weird texture. I just couldn't. I was just like, what? In the so w- tasty, wholesome, <laughs> wholesome. So let's let's go to a Cato study from nineteen. 19- uh, from Dan- Daniel Griswold, uh, this will be in the show notes, in 1998. This is five years after NAFTA was uh, passed. Since the passage of NAFTA in 1993, the real gross domestic product of the United States has expanded by 12%, and civilian employment has grown by more than 8 million, including a net increase of half a million jobs in manufacturing uh Inflation has remained subdued at 2 to 3%, thanks partly to the price competition of imports. The job losses that critics of free trade blame on NAFTA are mostly fictitious, based on the misuse of trade deficit numbers, which we've already established here is a complete misnomer. Mm-hmm. About 150,000 Americans have, fil- have filed for benefits under a program for workers allegedly displaced by increased imports from Mexico and Canada. As painful as the displacement may be for those workers, the U.S. economy during the last four years has created that many net new jobs, approximately 
every three weeks. Nor has investment in the United States suffered since the passage of NAFTA. Total non-residential fixed investment in the United States has risen by one-third since 1993, from $600 billion to an annual rate of more than $800 billion so far in 1997. Investment in the U.S. last year included $77 billion in direct foreign investment, making the United States the number one destination in the world for foreign capital. In contrast, American direct investment in Mexico since the passage of NAFTA has averaged about $3 billion, or less than one-half of 1% of the capital invested in the U.S. during the same period. So much for a giant sucking sound. So this is... And you may, uh, I don't know if there's an economic principle, but I've noticed in doing this show that the more availability of labor and capital and goods, the the more economic growth there is. Right, right. I mean, is there an economic principle that says that or is it just everybody (laughs) knows that and I'm a dumbass? (laughs) No, I think um, there's for sure an economic principle for that. I do not remember the name for it. So, uh, Tom Woods failed. I know. All right. I hope he doesn't listen to the show. Oh <laughs> I, <don't>, my God. <laughs> I know he has listened, but probably not now. Right. Good. All right. So I'm safe. I just right. want to let everyone know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it just it's like the open borders argument. The more labor there is, the more jobs. Right. That, that will be filled. Mm-hmm. So what are some other things that as you were prepping that you kind of wanted to talk about in terms of tariffs? You know what? That's pretty much that covers a lot of the things that I had initially wanted to talk about. I mean, they're pretty much just the three the three arguments that we went through, you know, like, does it actually reduce the trade deficit? Um, Is it actually good for infant industries? Is it actually good for national security? So those are a few of the ones I had just pinpointed um, in my notes. Um, Yeah, I think that's that's about good. I think um, one of the one of the final things that we ought to actually cover uh, as we prep you for dealing with your boomer relatives at Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Do you have boomers in your family? I do. My huh? grandpa. Uh, how, so he's a Vietnam War veteran. So he just, he's a, how, he's a hoot. He's a hoot. He's, actually, he's great. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boomers. God. So your parents are Gen X. Yep, I guess I guess so, yeah. How weird is it that uh, here's an adult that has graduated college sitting here with Gen X parents? Oh, my God. Well, yeah, it's pretty weird. <laughs> so you're mil- are you millennial? Or you're millennial. Yeah, I'd be considered millennial, yeah. I think. All right, cool. Mm-hmm. You rule then. Uh, not one of these lame Gen Z. Do you, uh, <laughs> you look at your Gen Z uh, counterparts in your family and just go, I feel sorry for you. I know. I'm like, ooh. Yeah, it's kind of strange. With such a large family, you've got different generations, like different classified generations of of kids. So. <laughs> I'm millennial. The youngest will be a Gen Gen Z. Are you the oldest? I'm second oldest. Okay. Is uh, Reagan oldest? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, I'm the oldest of three. Wow. Three Am- kids. Wow. Amateurs. <laughs> Amateurs. Wow. Only three. Wow. <laughs> uh, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> so... One of the one of the real problems with tariffs is the danger that it presents mm-hmm. for the American population. Uh, so one of the one of the uh, w- one of the unspoken causes, uh, maybe not a lot of people think about. It. People think, oh, the Great Depression was caused by greed. Well, no, the Great Depression really was pushed further and uh, faster by tariffs, the Smoot Hawley tariffs. <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. Um, and so we talk, uh, we, we go now to uh, Thomas Sowell in 2005 uh, in an article titled, Tariffs Didn't Work Then, Won't Work Now. He writes, 
Most of the leading economists in the country were opposed. A front-page headline in the New York Times of May 5th, 1930 read, uh, 1,028 economists ask Hoover to veto the pending tariff bill. Those signing this public appeal against the new tariffs included many of the top economists of the day, 25 professors from Harvard, 26 at the University of Chicago, 28 at Columbia. But to a politician, what do 1,028 votes matter in a country the size of the United States? Rep. Hawley and Senator Smoot both ignored them, as did President Herbert Hoover, who signed the legislation into law the next month. The economic reasons for not restricting international trade then were the same as they are today. The only difference is that what happened then gives us a free home demonstration of what can be expected to happen if we go that route again. The Economist Appeal spelled it out. The proponents of higher tariffs claim that the increase in rates will give work to the idle. This is not true. We cannot increase employment by restricting trade. Skyrocketing unemployment. If a 9% unemployment was troublesome in 1930 when the Holly Smoot tariff was passed, it was nothing compared to the 16% unemployment the next year and the 25% unemployment two years after that. The annual rate of unemployment in the U.S. never got back down to the 9% level again during the entire decade of the 30s. American industry as a whole operated as a loss for two consecutive years. Mm. Farmers who had given strong support to the Holly Smoot tariff saw their own exports cut by two-thirds as countries around the world retaliated against the American mm. tariffs by restricting their imports of American industrial and agricultural products. The Economist Appeal had warned of retaliatory tariffs that would set off a wave of international trade restrictions which would hurt all countries economically. After everything that these economists had warned about happened, tariffs began uh, to be reduced, but throughout the 30s, they remained above where they were before the Holly Smoot tariffs, and so did unemployment. Many factors, of course, affected the Great Depression of the 30s, but later economists looking back have seen the Holly Smoot tariff as one of the factors needlessly prolonging the economic disaster. How much wiser are we today? Not much, if at all. Uh, and it seems to, to continue on in that vein. Mm-hmm. So, Gosh, I love Thomas Sowell. He is he awesome. He's great. I didn't really read a lot of Thomas Sowell until recently, and mm-hmm. he's just so clear mm-hmm. and well-spoken. Right. Yeah. I love that man. I, I guess I shouldn't say well-spoken. Is that racist of me to say well-spoken? <laughs> I don't know. Huh? But I mean, for an economist to like, ma- like I read economists, I'm just like, I don't get it. I'm like, <laughs> Ah, no, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there anybody that you have trouble reading? Like, Hayek, to me, I'm just like, I gotta take my time with this. Actually, um, Mises, I have, yeah, don't kill me, everyone, but, like, I do have trouble, like, with him sometimes. You know, like, you're reading and reading, and then you're like, ah, I gotta read that again. Yeah. So, it's a it's a read and repeat you yeah. know, kind of thing. Would, so I think it's, it's, like, a generational English thing, too. Yeah, it could be. I just didn't learn to read until, like, last year. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were homeschooled, you know? <laughs> homeschooled (laughs) so do you did you like being homeschooled i loved it it was really good um yeah i i thought it was a great experience i got a lot of other opportunities out of homeschooling that i wouldn't have gotten in the public school system really so i think there are a lot of perks to it um i was never in sports um most clubs i was in was like chess club and debate 
Um, wow. But I did get to take college level classes in high school, which was kind of fun. And uh, um, got to graduate a year early and go live in Germany for a year. So that was also pretty chill. You know, there are a lot of things like different opportunities, trade-offs. Um, and I would have traded, you know, playing soccer anytime to go to Germany for the year. Yeah. So Or to take college classes. Which part yeah. of Germany? Um, Frankfurt. Okay. So, yeah. All right. My people time. are from Würzburg. It's big. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, did you get to travel all around Europe? And I did. I was all over the place. I did um, like a Euro tour. And then I spent a weekend in Finland. I was in, um, learned to ski in Switzerland, um, went to England for a bit too, um, all sorts of places. It's so. a, it's kind of annoying how fun your life is. <laughs> I just want to say my life is kind of cool. Uh, <laughs> that's all I'm here for. How, <laughs> how have you, how have you been able to create these opportunities for yourself? You know, it kind of, um, a lot of it spawned off of taking the gap year initially in high school and um, things just kind of come up when you're looking for them. And the way I see opportunities for people is that it's like, um, like opportunities are out there for everyone if, um, but you, but you have to be like actively, actively searching right. for them. And so, um, after I got back from the gap year, I was like, Oh, cool. Like now that I'm in college, I want to be sure I take another, you know, semester abroad. And then I took, um, two Januaries off. I did one to go backpacking and then one to go work in India marketing for a company. And it was like, like those different opportunities kind of come up as they go. So, but you um, have to kind of seek them out and right, you yeah. seek them out. Um, got some government grants to do some stuff. So that was, um, that was kind of fun. Felt very conflicted taking those, but <laughs> you paid like, for it. It's like, <laughs> like there's a bunch of library books sitting over there, and I pay for it. I'm going to use it. I know. No, that's what I'm saying. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and take this. And uh, screw I, you. <laughs> I always advocate libertarians should take every piece of government help. <laughs> so to to use it against them. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really cool that you have um created a lot of these opportunities. I think people sometimes think that they, they just are going to come along, but I think people don't realize that you have to kind of generate your own your your own stuff. You have to kind of right. be out there churning things and uh-huh. looking for opportunities and then taking the risk. I mean, just it takes guts to say I'm going to move to Malaysia or India or Germany. I mean, it's that's pretty cool i mean what is the mindset there where you're like i because i'm very much a comfort zone person Mm -hmm. so it's like i might be uncomfortable if i did that i mean what what do you when you're confronted with that choice of comfort versus adventure i mean what what is that that goes on in your head i was just i never never a huge homebody and so um well, there's no room for you. You didn't, <laughs> didn't have a couch. There was no I was TV. Like, I don't even have a bed here. <laughs> I just I'm looking for any food. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. You know, it was really hunger that really caused right. me to. Right. <laughs> no, so uh, um, no, so it was. I forget where my train of thought was going. I was thinking about hunger. Um, <laughs> Are you hungry? <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. Up, up. It was the avocado thing that I triggered could, me initially. Can no. whip up four <laughs> avocado pieces no. for you. No, that's fine. <laughs> no, so um, when when you're thinking about you know do I do this or do I not? Um, I kind of see it as like jumping into some cold water, you know, and it feels really good after you jump. Um, but you just kind of go do it. Like I, right. um, I tend not to overthink. Uh, trips too much and so I booked a trip to Honduras in uh, December to get my scuba license Um, but I probably shouldn't have done that (laughs) but I was like you know what I'm just gonna do it and so I just bought the tickets 
And um, that's just always what I do. I just buy the tickets and I plan it afterwards. Yeah. Because if I get bogged down in like the details of like, where am I going to stay or what am I going to eat? Yeah. You know, you just get too, you get too distracted with everything. It's so easy in the internet age. You could, It's so easy to rent a car. It's so easy to get an Airbnb. Right? It's so easy to find a little hole in the wall restaurant with Yelp or it, it no, is. It's, it's so true. It's like, and you don't, if you're going to travel, it doesn't take... I, you don't need a thousand dollars that week. It's like, all right, you pay two fifty for the Airbnb this month, and next month you pay two fifty for the air, and then right. yeah, you can kind of piece it all uh-huh. out. Uh huh. No, it's so true. And I've been kind of you know getting stuff in different chunks for like the Honduras trip, or I just got back from Mexico, and that was a couple. You know, like I don't know. You just kind of budget for it. You just kind of pick what you want to do and, and go for it. Right. So um. Yeah, I love it though. Um, I, I, uh, if I get bored, I look at plane tickets. That's <laughs> really an unhealthy obsession. But um, it's at least I don't like you know shop on TV or something. You know what I mean? Like, right. I got <laughs> yeah. Do you just like live super simply so you can go and do these trips? So you like have like four pieces of clothing? That's right. You know, I I eat once a day. <laughs> no, <I'm totally> <laughs> no. I, I I was always afraid to travel, and then this year I traveled a bunch, and it is not that hard to do, and not no. th- as expensive as uh, not as uh, as expensive as I thought. Mm-mm. And it is. It's fun. Like when I went, I went from m- one in May, two in June, two in July, one in August. It's like. I was so bored in September. Yeah. <laughs> and then thank goodness I got to go to Orlando and Florida. And then and now it's like, I'm not going anywhere for, for a while. Partly because I'm like, I gotta, I gotta like save my, build up my budget for this again. new car wheels. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, exactly. I got four of my tires stolen. Um, but it is, it's, it's kind of a, a cool experience. And especially when you're young and you don't have, uh, don't think you have a husband or kids. Nope. Uh, nope. All right. <laughs> I'm good on those two. All right. Not that you're aware of. <laughs> right. As far as I know, I don't have a husband or kids. Right. Oh, pretty- <laughs> <laughs> There's some Misesian kid going, no. <laughs> That's funny. That <laughs> so, so how active do you want to be in, um, in politics? Oh my word. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things I'm just like, I'm, uh, open to op, opportunities to be a part of things um um but i haven't really thought a whole lot about it and i think um goodness you know i've been so focused on like theory and econ the past you know four years ish and so um i've never been super into the politics of it right and and part of the reason i hate it is because kind of like we were talking about earlier is this whole um movement towards just like the feeling of it or just like the the vibes of a movement or you know how cool you look doing it that sort of thing and it really i feel like it should be based on you know good philosophy and like how do you view human beings like how does that reflect how you view their politics you know like what sort of responsibility do we expect people to have um and so if i could do if i could do politics in that way i would be so down but um uh, <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna just be honest you can't no. I mean, it, <laughs> right? it, it, it is it's it's such a vain industry and i think if you if you're a principled person and i think this is why ter- libertarians have so much trouble with all of it <laughs> is that if you're a if you're a principled person in a vain industry it's very difficult and so because the vanity is what what matters and Mm -hmm. so i could have been so much further ahead of my career had i been it's not that i'm not a vain person i mean i guess (laughs) it's uh, not like i don't love myself i have have my own vanities but at the same time it's like i'm not gonna sacrifice um certain things for for my principles Mm -hmm. but it is it's it's kind of a it's kind of a bummer i mean so 
All right. Well, let's give your final thoughts. Let's, so at the end, we do shameless self-promotion. We do final thoughts on the episode. Anything that you might have missed that you want to talk about in terms of tariffs, then no. th- this is the time to do so. Okay. You know what? I've got, a fun, got just a super random fun fact for you guys. Okay. Say, so, you know um, who collected the tariffs at the be- beginning when we first like did tariffs? So Alexander Hamilton was like, oh, we got to have you know people to collect the tariffs. Um, it was called the Revenue Cutter Service. Um, which sounded like a pretty cool name to me. But then it later got merged with the United States Coast Guard, which I didn't know. Really? And so, yeah. So that's just kind of a random fun fact. I was like, oh, the Coast Guard was the tariff police. That's sad. The United, so, the United Cutter Service is my favorite. United, my United favorite States Cutter Service. Is my favorite indie band. The Revenue band. Cutter Service. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty The Revenue pretty Cutters. Hip. Yeah. Man, they, 14 banjos. It's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretty hip guys everyone should listen uh all right any other final thoughts before we go no you know what i think i think we pretty much covered it um covered a few basic arguments um why they're important now um no i think all right all right well i want to uh so here's where we're at with the car uh it is at the dealership (laughs) they're getting the tires me 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 no (laughs) yeah exactly uh just i've I've gotten a lot of messages so this will this will kind of because people are curious the insurance company uh and i i don't think we're gonna have to fight but uh we it almost got there on friday so it's it's all being taken care of i just i'm at the point and uh i don't you're younger so you're not there yet but you just get to a point where you go i pay you a lot of money stop making it difficult on me (laughs) I just learned a lesson when with the toe, for instance, that you better document everything in your life. Like you better take photos of everything. Mm-hmm. You better take video of things. You better protect yourself because these companies that you pay a lot of money for, they don't really, they're not really working for you. You got to kind of make sure that you're looking out for yourself. And it's, I don't know. I grew up in, I've always been a very much, um, I don't work out type person, but I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to start rolling tape on everything, yeah. mm-hmm. everything, every, rolling tape on it all. Because if you, if I didn't have some of the photos and videos that I had, it'd probably be a lot uh, more complicated. So, uh, but uh, thanks to Craig DeCosta, Jason Doolittle, Christy Avery, um, the Freedom Coalition, the Liberty Coalition, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know why I do that. The Liberty Coalition uh, for for being our $100 a month subscribers. Uh, everybody, thank you for joining us here on this episode of We're Libertarians. Uh, still no power. We're still yeah, sitting we're here in the dark. Yeah, we're still out in the dark. So it's been fine though. We're still we're still conquering it anyway. It's been this. it's been twenty seven minutes and she's not tried to uh, cannibalize me yet. Right. So, so but I told you I was hungry. We're not panicked yet. <laughs> Those avocados are in the kitchen because I'm just the, there's a ripe avocado. I've got the stuff to make uh, the, the the guacamole for your avocado toast. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week.